All right. Let's get into it. Let's Welcome go. Welcome to Nobody's Muses, episode two. And we are discussing the first two episodes of Daisy Jones and the Six. So if you haven't watched those two episodes, spoiler alert, we will do our best not to talk about the things that we know that happened from the book. So just watch out, though. But this is first two episodes. So don't listen if you haven't listened. Watch both of those. Yeah. And I'm and- really, I'm really like, I'm trying to separate, again, working on that separating the book from the show itself, um, which is somewhat easy because like, I can't remember a lot of what I listened to the first time I listened through the book. Um, so it's easy for me to forget. <laughs> It's, it's, so it is like watching it with fresh eyeballs because I forget. It's easy for me to forget lots the of joy things. This is 50 something. Yes, exactly. All right. So, well, we're back. It's yeah. Rachel and Crystal here again. Um, that was fun last week when we it did was, this. I'm excited which, that we're doing it. Yeah, I'm really excited. And here but, we are again, ready to go. Um, so let's go. So the first, um, the title of this one is called Track One, Come and Get It, which I'm thinking it's referring to the, um, if you want it, here it is, come and get it by Badfinger, I believe is this. So, and the, um, the cold open sets up where you have the, all these people are setting up for the interview. So this is set and this is the 1997. So you see right. Billy sitting down and he doesn't look like he wants to do it. Graham is, you know, ready to go. Eddie looks kind of hesitant. Karen is testing the mic. And of course, Warren is, is this thing on. And <laughs> also really, I think it's really funny because they kind of set up the personalities of each of the people just in those first shots. Yeah. And, and this is where we see one of the big differences because it the book indicated that it was a lot further along in their lives than what what the episodes are showing so because again you couldn't get that big of an age gap and make it work and believable with the characters so so we have a smaller a smaller gap in time Mm -hmm. um it's set the interviews are set like in 1997 ish so we're we're setting them down and getting ready to talk to them yeah, and, and Billy is super uncomfortable. Yes, and um, I would just say, like, whenever in nineteen seventy seven, I was six, and so I was probably really into Star Wars, and and in nineteen ninety seven, I was twenty years later. I was working and and I think we were pretty close to maybe close to you getting married. I was, I was married. Yeah. We got married. married. I was 26 when we got married. Yep. 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 Okay. Just, so, yeah, I we don't know. Married. I was just thinking about like, we were married and starting our careers. Yeah. In um, 1997, we were, um, yeah, we thought we were so grown up. We were grown up. We were college <laughs> graduates. We were um, out on our own. Yeah. We realized adulting is not fun. No. But you bills. get, you get two weeks vacation. There's no breaks. <laughs> No, there's no brakes and there's bills. You've got to buy tires for your cars. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The reality. Oh, and student loans. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, So, but anyway, we see them sitting down and testing the mics and kind of getting ready to start the conversation. Yeah. And Billy says, how long is this going to take? And then he also, and then we go into the 
um, the title comes up and it says on October 4th, 1977, Daisy Jones and the Six performed to a sold out crowd at Soldier Field in Chicago, Illinois. They were one of the biggest bands in the world at the time, fresh off their award-winning multi-platinum selling album, Aurora. It would be their final performance. In the 20 years since, members of the band and their inner circle have refused to speak on the record about what happened. The montage of photos that they used I thought were really, really good. They already, I thought to me, they invoked emotion before the, before the show ever got started. Even if you've never read the book, to me, that series of photos that they showed invoked a lot of emotion. You saw where it ultimately ended up of Billy walking off stage and leaving Daisy there by herself. Yeah. So to me, those were, those were good selections. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I I had a little bit of the feeling of like you know how in movie trailers they show all the good parts and the funny parts, uh-huh. and I was like, I'm like, I don't know if I want to know this much information just by these photos. Now, maybe because I've read the book and I know how things are going to happen, maybe maybe it's not as obvious to people who haven't read the book. I'd be interested to hear from people, and you could email us email us at nobody's muses at gmail.com if you have any thoughts on that but I felt like it was I don't know it made me a little nervous because I'm like I don't know if I want to know this yet I want to go through the experience but um it but I thought um it it is interesting and I think it's something that we will look back on later about this as we get to know the characters yeah and so we go to back to them getting ready in 1997 for their interview and the big part is so daisy billy says so daisy also agreed to this and then another um title comes up and says until now and then um you see daisy and you she doesn't say anything she just smiles you know and i think they really do set up already the characters and i wanted to mention um Graham, the the brother being, you know, just tell me when you're ready and him being very sweet to the interviewer and Mm -hmm. everyone and everybody kind of having different um, ideas about how they were going to how they're interacting with the interviewer. And um, so we go to until now and then we go Daisy is looking awesome. I think she looks really great in the 1997 version of herself. And then we cut straight to. Um, the open and the open uses um, Patty Smith's um, dancing barefoot as their is their music. And so what so, do you think about this song? Well, here I um, I would say I was surprised that they didn't use something from the album from Aurora from the music they created. Um, I think that that's interesting, but I think it's a I mean, the song is the, the lyrics to that song, and I didn't. I'm gonna have to go, and I want to do a breakdown of the um, the song lyrics with the images that we see in the open. But I think, just looking at the lyrics, I do think that there is a. I mean, if you look at the lyrics, it's like she is a benediction. She is addicted to the. She is the root connection. So um, I think this is a lot. Um, it actually is very appropriate. And as we go through mm-hmm. this story, I think it's going to really show that. What do you think? 
Yeah, no, I think it um, definitely was setting a stage um, to the importance of Daisy's character throughout the entire series, which of course we know that her character is important because it's Daisy Jones in the six. Yes. But, you know, I think there's something to be said about that choice of that song and her importance throughout the series. And again, you know, she is a benediction. The lyrics kind of, you know, we've heard of, we heard a different, ver- we've heard a different version of this song, the original Patty Smith singing it, but you two also did a version of this. Right. And so as you hear Bono singing these lyrics about she is, she is, I could also hear, you know, in my mind, Billy thinking she is this, she is yes. this, and all of these things that kind of connect their relationship to each other. I mean, it says he is levitating with she, you know, um, it, it it is about um, a person maybe taking someone where somewhere they don't want to go. Not necessarily bad, but a place that they don't want to go. Yeah. So out of their comfort um, zone. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, yeah. So we go into that and then we go back and we see them once again in 1997. And the interviewer asked Daisy, when did you first fall in love with music? And then we go straight cut to her being a little girl, just an adorable little girl um, singing, um, just singing her heart out with with her little vinyl record. And she... And and a song that most most six-year-olds probably would not have known at that time. No, well, I don't know it now. I mean, <laughs> so. I mean, but if you think about it, um, exactly, yeah, it probably wasn't a song that many six-year-olds had playing, had the forty-five playing on their little record player. So I yeah. think that tells us something about where she is already when it comes to that connection to music. Yes. So then I'd be curious as to know, like, who who gave her that connection to music, because her parents are so disconnected from her. Right. Very cold. And I think it's interesting to me that I don't think the dad has a single word of dialogue so far. Not so far. He's just standing there. So, and she's singing um, Alone, All Alone I Sit. It's by Violet Hall. And her mom comes in and tells her to be quiet and says, no one wants to hear you. And... What a cruel thing to say. I think we set up real quickly what kind of mom. Yeah. Yeah. In the book, it explains that her dad's a, a painter. Mm-hmm. Her mom is a model. Yes. Um, children were just decorated. You know, Daisy as a child or Margaret as a child was just decoration for them. Yeah. Um, so I think we set up from the beginning, Daisy is looking for something. And she's not finding it in the places that she anticipated it or could have expected it to be. Right. So we start out with not finding that support, not finding that love, not finding that voice through her parents. So there's one relationship down that's not that's not playing out how how you would expect it to play out. Right. And then we cut to, um, well, we have a guy who plays a music credit critic, and I kind of like that they have this guy in here because it does give it that behind the music feel. And he basically sums it up that she was born in privilege and, 
you know, had all of the, there's no reason why um, she shouldn't be successful. And, but what, what does that mean? Kind right. of. And then we cut to the whiskey a go-go and that scene where she stands outside the whiskey and talks to the Rodian and um, asks for a cigarette. That's straight from the book. Well, first I want to sit back to the line that she has. And maybe it's in the book where she talks about, yeah, it is in the book where she is standing in front of the mirror, kind of examining herself. And it's the whole, they think you look older if you don't have a bra on. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's definitely. <laughs> they think you're older if you don't have a bra on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Again, where do we get that mindset? <laughs> I don't know. She's supposed to be around 14 at this time, I think. Yes. Is what, is what we expect her to be. But yeah, she shows up at the whiskey asks for a cigarette because who hasn't experienced in their life that they think smoking a cigarette makes them look cooler um and so she just kind of happens into the go-go it's not like she even went in with somebody else no she saw an open door and she walked her ass right through it right and headed on in and i mean i appreciate that they didn't just go with like the the typical song is Strawberry Alarm Clock, which is not the um the most um that band is not the most known of the sixties bands. I appreciated they didn't do like, you know, your typical like basically from the soundtrack of Forrest Gump anytime you talk about the sixties, you know? Yeah. So and then when she's there, she sees the um the birds are playing, mm -hmm. which, you know, I think is still in some ways a very underrated band even though they weren't around for that long and they're singing going back which um is if i'm looking up i've it's a great song but it's not and one that we I think believe... about when we think yes. about the birds no it's not their cover of you know um but and i believe it's a goffin king song let me we might have to edit this out because i want to make sure i'm right um yes it's a goffin it's a Jerry Goff and Carol King song song. So there it is. Yes. I did not know that. Yes. So that's important. They, they are doing they're doing some important things here. I mean, the as we go forward, that that's something to note about what they're choosing to use as the back. I do feel like they put a lot of thought into what they're using in the background and the lyrics of those songs. And I think we might have to just do a whole deep dive on that in a later episode. Well, and that kind of a, a note that I have further down in there. We, we know that we have Aurora available to you wherever you stream your music. Um, they have released an LP of Aurora, multiple versions of it that you could order off of Amazon. So you can get, collector's edition you can get a translucent you can you can get a regular olp so we have an lp of aurora um we need to have all the other music yes all the other music not just the music that like you know patty smith or you know t-rex or whatever mm -hmm. those artists that we hear in i need that music and i need the songs that weren't on aurora that daisy sings or simone sings yeah. Yeah. we need we need we need a daisy jones album not just an aurora album yeah i might just have to make the spiral the playlist myself but yeah <laughs> but yeah we need that we need the other we need the other um music on there as well 
but we can do a deep dive into that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So then we go, we cut to, we are in Pittsburgh now where the actor Dan Rowe is a young Billy and he's um, in a listening booth at a, uh, at a guitar store, at a record store. It really reminds me of um, a couple of scenes in That Thing You Do. Yeah. Where they're in record store. And he says there was the mill in the war and that's kind of all you had. Well, and one of the things it's really hard, like I've tried to go back to my book and kind of find these scenes in the book to compare them. And it's hard because you're actually in two different chapters because mm-hmm. you kind of have a chapter that really goes through Daisy and where she was and how she evolves. And then you go into a chapter that's all about the Dunn brothers and how they grow and how they evolve. So trying to flip back and forth between two chapters yeah. to connect and see, you know, where things were in the book versus where they are in the show. Um, it's a little bit of challenge, but I think we can, you know, I think anybody can relate to the idea of knowing th- that, you know, if you grew up in a, a small town, you got to, you know, there's a yeah. lot of times where we've had, where we or a lot of instances where we can see in those small town exp- experiences, even though it sounds like it's a suburb of Pittsburgh, you got two choices. You either go out yeah. through the war, you leave this town through the war, or you stay here and you work in the mill. Yeah. And there's still that experience for a lot of kids today. Yeah. Um, you know. And he's, and especially um, at that moment because it wasn't like now where you can volunteer you 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 know you you get drafted yep if you didn't volunteer you had a high likelihood of getting drafted in yeah so in the height of the vietnam war yeah um so and i think i think he's a great actor i i love this this i love the young billy mm-hmm. i think he's yeah. very um i think he's really good um, we see him he's got groceries and he goes home and his and he's like where's Graham and she's his mom's like oh he's still upstairs and he's upset over a girl yeah and I'm trying to think well, like what the age gap is between those I think Graham was supposed to be about 14 so I'm gonna say that Billy was like 18 yeah I'm thinking like point, I, like a four-year gap I'm thinking that it was kind of like um Graham is a, the freshman or maybe he and um and Billy's like the junior or senior you know and whenever you're whenever your siblings like they might as well be an adult when it's just two years difference so that's kind of how I I kind of picture them so it seems like oh you're just my little brother it's just two years but yeah and especially as we move forward so we'll go to it so um Warren is like it was Graham's idea to start the band and they show them they show the four of the his buddies very young the three of his buddies Graham and his three buddies and they're like like you know Graham Graham's like let's start a band they're in their PE uniforms and they're they're they don't really want to do it until they say oh but my Billy Billy's going to be in it and they're like oh okay and here's one of those glaring differences that um even though you know we're trying to separate and watch watch this through different eye here is a glaring episode because we are or difference we are missing a character yes okay so we have um we have pete yes yes we have pete who is completely non-existent um which i you know i'm like he he played a part through all of this Yes. Um, and I don't know why they cut him out. 
I don't either because I feel like it also added a nice little kind of perspective on it. Um, his character of to me, he's kind of like the Bill Wyman of of this band. Like you know, Bill Wyman, the bass player for the Stones, was kind of just the guy who was there. You know, yeah. like there's very little drama. He got along with people, and then you know he retired before the rest of them because he's like, I'm tired and. I feel like Pete was a really grounding presence for the show, for the band. And I, I do think it's a weird choice. And it's like, especially because the name Daisy Jones and the Six doesn't make as much sense. No. And, you know, we'll talk about that later. But yeah, yeah. I just think, um, I think it was a character that should have been left as is. Yes. yes. Because I think they, although... Like you said, they're kind of an agreeable, get along kind of character. I still think that they had a, that, that Pete had a place that was important to the story. Yes. I think he had a place and, that was important to the story. And I think we can talk about it later because I think what he shows is a different road than a lot of the other people in this, in this story take. Yes. So. Agreed. We go and then it's I, I. This is something they do a lot in the book, where it's Billy's like, "Oh, I never said I'd be in the band," but it's you know he says that in in his nineteen ninety seven self. But then when they show it, it's really obvious that he, um, he wanted to be in the band. And I think one of the big lines is they they show them and they're not playing very well, and Billy takes over and is like, "You're playing too loud. This isn't jazz." Um, you guys got to do better. And then he said, and then Eddie says, by the second practice, he was basically in the band. And by the third, it was his band, that fucking guy. So we're setting up Eddie. Yeah. And um, yeah. <laughs> we're set, we're setting up a history there with Eddie and yeah. Billy. Yes. Which is very cool. typical of lots of bands. You know, you go back to, you know, you go back to the Beatles. John felt like that was his band. And whenever they broke up, he's like, you can't break up the Beatles. That's my band. You know, when Pete, whenever Paul left, you know, and it's the same way with um, the police, you know, Stuart Copeland is like, no, the, the, the police are my band. So I think that that, you know, that draws on a lot of bands, kind of that idea of like, who's really, whose band is it? Right. And, and, you know, there has to be some, there ha you have to have a leader somewhere along the lines. You've got to have somebody even in a collaborative relationship, somebody has to take the lead. Yeah. Um, and I think Billy had the ego to be willing to take the lead. He didn't want to seem like it. I think he wanted to play the aw shucks kind of, you know, mm -hmm. older brother. I'm not really into this for all these little kids, but I think he was looking for this outlet because again, it's the mill or the war. Yes. And he didn't want either one of those. He wanted something different. So this was his opportunity to step into something different and create a, a new path for himself. Yeah. So, so then now let's go back. We, we're interchanging here between, um, and I think it is interesting. And to me, it's a very obvious of um, notes and how TV has to be different than um, books because there's no way we could have done a whole episode, which we do in the chapters. Like the first chapter is all Daisy. And then the next chapter is all, all Billy and the Dunn brothers. You would not be able to do, you can't do that TV. 
Like, you're like, we're, we're going to have to have them all. So that's why we kind of cut between. And I do think it kind of hurts it in the sense that I do think it's kind of a little disjointed. But I it, it works well enough. So yeah. now we cut back to um, Daisy. And this line is really kind of does crack me up because it's very, um, it reminds me a lot of um, the Dewey Cox. It's, it's a, you know, it's like, what a time to be in, alive if you love music. You know, and there's some uh, line in Dewey Cox where she says something. It's a very special time if you love music or something like that. It, that cracks me up. But um, so she's every, loving every music. Every generation can say that. Yes. What a time to be alive if you love music. Every uh, generation can say that. Yeah. For Daisy, that point in her life. But think about, you know, where she was at this point. She was probably 15, you know, coming. I mean, we know what music was like when we, for us. Yes. And I know that there are humans in this world that music does not speak to them the same way music speaks to other people. I don't understand those people, <laughs> but there is something to be said for what music, when you have somebody who is a music enthusiast, who is very passionate about music, being 15 years old and thinking that this is the greatest point of musical history. I think we, we, probably all sit there at one point in our lives also i think that as much as we maybe as gen xers in the shadow of boomers get tired of hearing how great the 60s were um this is the high point for rock and roll you know i mean there's other great there's other great peaks in it but you just think about the things that rock and roll, the trans, yes, they make it, they take it That's from, rock and roll. That they take it. it from Chuck Berry to this thing that is um, ubiquitous to almost to the point where in the seventies it becomes corporate and then we have to have a reaction to it. So, you know, it is, you know, that point. And I would say for me personally, as much as I like the current music of when we were growing up, I was incredibly like the Beatles were I love the Beatles you were way more into 60s music when we were in high school because that's we should say yeah Crystal and I not only went to college together and that's where we really came into our friendship we also went to a very small high school outside yeah. of Fort Worth Texas um that was a very small town at that time and if you <sighs> It's Crystal and I were not in the A crowd. I will say that we were not the cheerleaders. No, nope. we were not the popular cool kids. No, nope. um, we have a we we laugh about the Venn diagram of our friendship. Yeah, <laughs> but so for even I mean Crystal, we had similar friends in high school. We right. were not directly connected to each other. But even what I knew of you then, I knew that your your musical taste definitely hearkened in the 60s period more than it did in the current day stuff yeah I mean I liked I mean I liked you too and I liked REM and I liked um I liked to listen to that stuff but what I was passionate about was passionate about was um any any um British you know British waves you know Beatles Rolling Stones The Who um you know that's what I was into 
and and then later it came like just my progression was very much that same thing where later then it was like oh I really like Led Zeppelin and Sabbath you know as I grew older my Mm -hmm. my musical tastes but you know I want to go on a tangent and we might edit this out but I want to ask you when did you know that you loved music and how did you like when did that become important to you so music has always, I don't remember a time in my life when there was not music. So I grew up, um, the youngest of three girls, my mom played piano. Um, and I can vividly see us on a random Saturday, frequently, mom would get on the piano and one of us would sit down next to her on the bench or be standing next to her if there was somebody already on the bench and we would flip through the multitude of songbooks that she had and we would start playing music and it may have been anything from show tunes um to at that point in time current pop rock hits you know in the throughout the 70s into the early 80s um music was always a thing always a thing in our household. And I had, like you, I had older sister. You had an, you had one older sister and one older brother. I have two older sisters. Um, so I, you know, got into music through a lot of what my older sisters were listening to. Um, and what like my oldest sister's boyfriend was listening to, cause there would be days where like they might pick me up from school or something like that. And there was some kind of something in the eight track. So that's where I started hearing bands like Fleetwood Mac, REO Speedwagon, Boston Triumph, you know, all <laughs> of these, all of these great seventies, you know, I listened to the Rocky Horror Picture Show soundtrack for the first time on eight track. Um, so, you know, it was a lot of that, but I just always remember music. It's just always been a part of my life. You know, I, I don't know how to play an instrument, play, you know, played piano for a little while, but I mean, we lived out in the country. You couldn't, it was a hassle to get music lessons going. Um, you know, studied voice in high school, sang in high school and, you know, musical theater or in church, um, and, danced from the time I was about 12 until I was about 22. Um, so music was just always, you know, a part of, a part of me always has and always been. And, you know, I've, I've passed, I feel like I've passed that along to my kids because Uh, obviously one of them, (laughs) they're always, you know, they listen to a ton of music. I think, you know, my youngest has the musical ADHD that I have that he listens to just about everything um they listen to stuff that their that their dad listens to which is you know metal music but then they'll also listen to you know show tunes or they'll listen to you know stuff that I've introduced them to or some country you know so they're kind of all over the place like me but yeah I just I don't remember a time where music wasn't a part of my life yeah about you well you know because I don't it's church for me it's church like I grew up in, I grew up in Baptist church and I grew up singing in church, you know, very much so. 
Um, and that's really my parents, like my parents' music, like they had like some Chris Christopherson albums and a, like a Charlie Rich album, but they're, what they really cared about musically was singing in church. And my parents used to, they used to sing duets, you know, and, and then growing up, I was in choir and church. And so that, and I, I took piano, you know, I, and so that was always the big part of it for me. And then same as you being a youngest we have the benefit of having, um, I think, better taste in music usually because our older siblings kind of get us into it earlier. And my sister had especially one boyfriend in high school that was um, he would like he would like DJ the the school dances. And he we thought he was so cool because he had a jam box with an eight track player and he had really good taste in music, which my sister did not. So. <laughs> Yeah. So like his taste in music, I, like that's what I, I can remember um, being, you know, this was like 1981 and him telling my brother, oh, there's this band R.E.M. And I remember us hearing Radio Free Europe on the radio and going, oh, that's that band Bob was talking about, you know, mm -hmm. like so um, and I always just I've always been an old soul. So I think that that's why. Um, there's certain moments for me, like it's really dumb, but the reason I really fell in love with the Beatles is I remember watching Ferris Bueller's Day Off and, you know, they have that whole sequence where he does Twist and Shout and I was like, oh, that's a Beatles song. That's a really good song. And then I started going through my head of all the songs that I love by the Beatles. I'm like, oh, they're my favorite band, you know, like, <laughs> you know, when you put it all together, I was like, oh, you know, that's kind of dumb, but like, that's really, so for me, that's kind of where um, and, and just, yeah, growing up and just, you know, me and my sister would get 45s at the JCPenney. We were really into disco mm -hmm. and practicing and practicing the disco moves. Yes. And then when my sister realized she told her friends that and they looked at her and then she stopped doing it because she got too old. Oh, I can't tell you how it was many. Very fro it was a very frozen <laughs> moment. Like, how many dance, dance numbers? Yeah, how many dance numbers I choreographed to before I ever started taking dance? How many yeah. dance numbers I choreographed to um a multitude of songs, um, the Grease Town, the Grease soundtrack, which I probably had no business listening to as an elementary age kid. Um, but I did. And um me and my neighbor friends, um, we had we had multiple um finely choreographed dance routines to a lot of those songs, <laughs> a lot of those songs. And, and see, and this is you and I could probably spend an entire episode just talking about songs from our life. Right. And, and where, because that's just it. And that to me is like, I jokingly say, I don't understand people who like you ask them what their favorite band is. And they're like, I don't really have a favorite band. How could you not have a favorite band? I don't understand you. And so for us who are that passionate about music, um, I think we can go back and, you know, Daisy's picking these moments in her, you know, we're seeing mm -hmm. these moments in her life where she's falling in love with music. We could probably go back over the story of our own lives and pick songs and pull songs out of points of our lives. And I'm going to yeah. tell you for me personally, there are some songs I immediately evoke emotions in me that a lot of people might not understand. Yeah. So back to Daisy Jones the Six, we, she's back there, you know, she's living life in the 60s and she's 15 and she says, I was 15 years old and it's the world seemed just so, so beautiful. beautiful and good. 
and and then we see a scene where she is raped she goes yeah. back to a hotel room and um an older guy who's got like the um he had very, a jim morrison look about oh, him yeah, I didn't the, really, he had the jim morrison I didn't really leather like. pants i didn't um, really care for the fact that they I didn't like that they put, not saying that Jim Morrison was a perfect human being and that this probably did happen at some points in his, his life, but I don't understand why we had to connect a very obviously yes. um, stylized character to this moment in her life. Because in the book, it's just, it's, it's a random, just a random, it's a random drummer from a yeah. band. Yeah. It's not anything like what we're see what we saw in the in the episode and i i had a problem with that i didn't like the fact that they stylized the character to look so obviously like jim morrison well and because i mean the, the long and the short of it is whether you stylized it to look like jim morrison or it was a, some random guy in a band that played drums the fact of the matter stays say it remains yes. the same daisy was raped yes and I have mixed feelings about it because in the book, I guess in the book, it, it I feel like you know it's the it's the whole idea of this unreliable narrator, and she is she's telling us what she wants to say. So she kind of like no big deal, like oh I just laid there until he got done. Yeah, the book the book kind of blew it off, and which you know. Mm, so many of my girlfriends have stories that are like that where they convince themselves that they weren't raped and they 100% were. So it felt real. And then she does say, um, her <laughs> I was a baby. Yeah. Um, People want to say I was naive. I wasn't, you know, I was a baby. And she was. Yeah. She was. I think that if you go into this, you look at it now, that like things like that, of course, of guys having sex with 15 year olds was, was so normalized i mean like you read if you read pam debar's i'm with the band it's kind of gross like when you read about jimmy page and how he really liked 15 and 16 year old girls you know and you know it was just normalized and i do appreciate the fact that now we're like ooh, that's icky you know but and, i think if this had been i mean this was supposedly when she's saying this it's 1997 Yes. In 1997, I don't think we would have said, ooh, this is icky either. No, we wouldn't I, have. I think we would have still, in 1997, been like, oh, she was a groupie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Not the fact that she was 14 or 15 years old. Well, oh, she was a groupie. No, the fact that we used to couch it and just call it date rape instead of, yeah. no, you're straight up raped. If you have, if someone forces you to have sex against your will, you're raped. Yeah. So she uses that moment to, and this is completely different from the book. In the book, she's known as Daisy through the whole thing. She goes back to the house and she, in her diary, she opens up a new diary and she changes her name to Daisy. Mm -hmm. So it's a moment of, cathar you know, it's transformative. This thing that happens to her, you know, she's going to change, change it by she's changing her name. So yeah. then cut back to the adult Dunn brothers are at a party and they are um, in matching turtlenecks. And I'm just, what I'm trying to figure out about this is by this time, we're at, you know, this is, it's got, it's 1970. So we're real past, we're well past like the matching suits phase of, you know, the British pop wave. Are we that far along, do you think? Well, this isn't, it, it, it has the date 1970. Oh, it did? Okay. Yes. Okay. 
but again they're in pittsburgh so are they really oh that's true that's true (laughs) you know what's the uh how i met your mother the episode of robin sparkles where they're like why are you dressed like the 80s it was 1993 well you know the the 80s didn't get to canada until the 90s (laughs) well (laughs) you know maybe it's kind of like that pittsburgh you know they didn't get out of that phase in Pittsburgh for they were delayed a couple of years because they weren't on the coast. Well, like let's face it, like the seventies <laughs> lasted farther into the eighties than everyone wants to think. Like you look at things from like eighty, eighty one, and it's still very seventies. So oh, yeah. it's the so they're um he says, you know, they play a song and he says, Oh, we're the Dunn brothers, and then Eddie chimes in, he's for setting now. these things up for now. And for now. yeah. And they, at this point, they're really, this is just fun. This is something fun for them to do. It's a hobby. And then, and Warren says, yeah, the the band was a distraction. And then we have a scene where they're playing a wedding and they see their dad and he's with a much younger woman. But again, I go back to, do you think it was, it was just fun for Billy? Or again, was he trying to find his different path from the war or the mill? well i feel for like warren and all of them it was still you know for i think all, all the time warren thought the band was fun but you know for billy i think he was getting more serious about it maybe faster than the rest of the guys were well i mean i think that they they point out in this scene they he he sees this and a thing that maybe in the back of his mind was like oh maybe i could be a musician becomes i'm gonna do this because when he sees his dad and confronts his dad he says, um, it's actually, he says, that's when he says, we're going to be a band. I, he says, I love you. We're going to be the biggest fan, best, biggest fucking band in the world. That's when he says it. Mm-hmm. So what I think was a, a little kernel of an idea of maybe I want to do this. This becomes the driving force behind it. And what I do like about the scene is that there's two, there's some choices that they make. They make the choice where Billy busts up the guitar that his dad gave him. Cause his dad was, he's like, do you recognize? He's like, yeah, I recognize that guitar. He didn't say, I recognize you. I recognize the guitar because you can take this guitar. And he's like, oh, well, no, I gave it to you. And Billy, you know, bashes the hell out of it. And then Graham is the one who punches him though. Yeah. Cause Graham was four when he left. So Graham uh- and Honestly, Graham, I have no memory of who his dad was. Yes, and but also I think that it sets up the relationship of Graham, who Graham is in relationship to Billy. And I mean, and in the books, it's a little even more um, strong because maybe Graham wasn't isn't as good a guitar player, and they talk about you know the other guys are like maybe we should get somebody else, and Billy's like you know sets them straight. Yeah, that's not happening. Because so first then, and foremost, that's my brother. Yeah. So then we cut back to um, Daisy's doing drugs. Daisy's writing. Um, she, and she says, um, she says, writing is better than drugs. Like, it's like I found a piece of me that was missing. Um, I love that line. And, yeah. And, you know, she, it was a place for her to escape. Um, 
I feel like the the scene of her doing drugs it was just kind of funny because they really linger on her smoking pot like so bad, but not really on the part where like she's snorting heroin, like where she's snorting, snorting coke or popping I mean, I rando like, pills. I mean, I feel like you kind of build that a different way. You like you start with the pot, the as yeah. they called it, the gateway drug, which now it's you know it's um, basically legal across many places. You know, you then you you show a different way so i thought that was um i thought that was an interesting choice <laughs> but yeah. um you know i think that she, she then she's she's writing and you know her mom she catches her mom in her room and her mom's reading her diary and her mom is so dismissive and because she goes well what did you think and she's like mm, you're pretty yeah and yeah. You know, I mean, I do feel like I, you know, my relationship with my mom wasn't, is not like that, but I do feel like I had friends in my life whose moms were so worried about them looking pretty and being pretty. And, and I would say a good chunk of those girls had eating disorders as we grew older. Mm -hmm. Um, And, or tended to be more promiscuous at a younger age. And I think that that, you know, there is something to, you know, that approval from your parents. And yeah. if you don't get it, where are you going to, where are you seeking it? Yeah. Well, cause I, I, I made a note about like for her at that point in her life, the ability to, for her to be able to write lyrics was like the absolute pinnacle for her. Like nothing gets better than this. There's no better feeling yet. She's and she's even saying that in comparison to the drugs, cause she was already using uh-huh. We see the scene where she's snorting stuff. We see her popping pills. We see her um, smoking a joint. And so she's already using and she's already getting those chemical highs or those, you know, hallucinogenic highs. But she still comes back and says, you know, that there's, it's like you found a piece of yourself that was missing. Like for her, the writing part was at that point in her life was her pinnacle. And she was finding so much out of that. It's, it's like, okay, well, the drugs at that point were kind of, peri- I don't know. They made it seem kind of peripheral for her, but I don't know. I don't know. Well, and I do think they also show her success, you know, a successive group of different men that she's with too. They're not showing her actually having sex, but yeah. like she's getting her dopamine hits where she can get them, whether it's yeah. through drugs or through sex, whatever she can. Yeah. You know, but she- I do think to your point, there's, the fact that her mom was so dismissive, mm-hmm. I think no matter what kind of relationship we have with our parents, there is always a point, a part of you, especially at that age, yes. that's going to look for either some kind of approval or some simple acknowledgement of yes. your existence. Because yes. again, Daisy's parents, they Daisy was ornamental for them. They were not interested in being parents. She was just ornamental decoration and so they couldn't even she couldn't even get their not you know barely could get their acknowledgement of her existence yes we can look at it and see there's no way they're going to give her any kind of encouragement about her writing skills Um, but for her at that age she was hoping that her parents would tell her great job which is totally appropriate for that age and we are you know you and I are lucky that we had you know as good as really I mean I think very good relationship with our parents who did acknowledge and encourage us, you know, and so I have 
But I do have friends in my life who, even though they don't have a good relationship with their parents, still want something. Sure. You can't help it. No, you can't. It's ingrained. It's genetic. I don't, I think it's biological. You yes. want the people, the people that gave you life, you want them to acknowledge. Yes. You want them to know you. You yeah. want, you need them to know you because probably evolutionary wise, we needed them to know us so they would protect us so we could live. Yeah. So we cut back to, back to Pittsburgh and we have Billy meets Camila in the laundromat. Yes. Big change from the book. Yes. Big change from the book. In the but book, in the book, he meets her at a part at a wedding. Yeah, where and, she's waiting. And she, yeah, she's and a waitress, she, right? Yeah, and she knows that he's in a band because he's playing. Um, but I thought it worked. It worked. Um, it I worked. There was some clicheiness about it, but yeah, but it worked. I mean, you know, he makes this he makes this assumption that she knows who he. I mean, he he's Billy Dunn from the Dunn yeah. Brothers in Pittsburgh. Yeah. How could you not know who I am? And she, I love that she played, she basically, she nags him. It's like, oh, I don't know. And then we cut to 1997 Camila and she's like, oh, I knew who he was. I knew who he was. Yeah. But you don't want to give him the satisfaction of knowing. Yeah, exactly. You know who and he I is. mean, and she's already setting the terms like there, you know, of what, what that relationship should be like. Yeah. And so, the whole conversation about, you know, um, give me your number and I'll write you a song. She's, does that line actually ever work on anybody and he's like well, i don't know give me your number and we'll find out because you're the first person i've tried that with i mean that's a cute ex- that was a cute exchange i liked it it worked yeah it helped it told the story and then we go back to there's they're setting stuff up and this is diff- this is all the stuff with eddie is different than from the book so mm-hmm. we um we set it up and eddie knew camila he knew her from he would walk her home from church yeah very then, different from the book and then we have like a little montage of time passing and you know they're practicing the band's getting better and better taking it more seriously but we already see billy drinking um in the in this whole sequence and you know warren's like if my hands were raw and red i was happy because that means they were they've been practicing and then we cut to a scene of billy meeting the family um and you know, typical kind of around the table and oh, Billy's a musician and the dad not being too into it and the mom just kind of trying to be supportive. Right. Which is and, different from the scene in the book too. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, you know, it's the typical thing that you would expect to see of a dad not wanting his daughter to get. I mean, I do like the fact that they just lean into that she's Hispanic. Mm-hmm. I like that. Um, and that, you know, and kind of show a Hispanic family in the 60s in Pittsburgh. Well, or early 70s. You don't see that a lot. So that yep. was cool. Um, yep. And then we have the whole scene where suddenly I blank on his name. But the one guy decides, Chuck. Chuck, Chuck decides um, that um, he's going to go to college. He's going to go to college. He wants to be a dentist. Very different from the book. Yes. So let's talk about that a little bit. And I know we're trying to kind of keep those two separate, but I think it, I think it brings yeah. out a point. And I actually went out and looked for this and, you know, why, why was this done? And I, I, 
I think they missed the boat on this. I do too. I think for the time period it was in, um, writing Chuck's character the way they wrote it, they missed they missed the boat on this one. Even though what happens, and we can do this without, no, without spoiling anything, with even with what ultimately ends up happening, it is, I mean, it is just kind of a passing comment or passing paragraph in the book itself. Um, they don't dive a whole lot of time into that, but it's still acknowledged. And I feel, still think it's appropriate for the time period that they were in. Mm-hmm. And so, but you know, everything that I've read about it said that they just didn't want to have that as part of the movie or part of the series. They wanted to, there was enough heavy stuff going on. They didn't want to add that to it. Yeah. Um. Well, so, so Chuck, yeah. in this Chuck, he, in this, Chuck in this multiverse, off to be a very Chuck's a dentist. Chuck goes off to be a very happy dentist. And the key thing, though, is here, which is different from the book, too, is Billy makes Eddie play bass. And that's a, I think that's a, that's a huge thing and a good way to have it, like, conflict, because. Again, yeah. So. But developing this conflict between these three yes. characters, ultimately, I, I would say the conflict yeah. and the struggle between the three characters yes. of Camilla, Billy, and Eddie. And, and Eddie. Yeah. So then we cut to Daisy singing in the shower and she's singing Lind- Linda Ronstadt's Beat of a Different Drum, which I just want to point out, written by Michael Nesmith of the Monkees. So just look at you. Well, I mean, I just he's yes, another part. one Another one of my obsessions is the Monkees yes. and Michael Nesmith. So um, she's singing that. And I would also say I think that's an important comparison because there was this era of women like Linda Ronstadt, um, Amy Lou Harris, who weren't necessarily writing music, but were interpreters of music in the same way that women singers in the 40s and 50s were interpreters of jazz standards. These were women interpreting um, music kind of in their own way and you know Linda Ronstadt is really important to rock and roll not just on her own as a musician and um, vocalist but because her backing band eventually became the Eagles so Mm -hmm. there is there's this is and in you know the book Daisy is kind of her first album I think is very much like kind of like what Linda Ronstadt did because they have her do a bunch of covers yeah so um, I like how they're setting that up and again, and so, for people that aren't into music, like you and I are into music, hopefully you're learning some things because <laughs> because not everybody is going to pay that close attention to know that, you know. Yeah, but I think Taylor deeper connection. Taylor Jenkins Reads knows it. Knows yeah. it. And I'm going to take... Um, I'm going to take a line from my one of my favorite shows at this point right now is The Last of Us, and there's a wonderful episode where one of the one of, it's one of the greatest te- television episodes ever. Um, one of the characters says, "Paying attention is how we show we care, and paying attention is how we show love." And I feel like this is what I expect from things that I love and I want them to be paying attention. So the times on this show where I feel like they're paying attention, I, that makes me feel warm. And so that choice of Linda Ronstadt and her just happened and they have to pay for that. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is, these are choices that cost money for TV shows. So her singing that little line maybe cost them $20,000. You know, we don't, I don't even know how long, I mean, it's so expensive to license music. So, Mm -hmm. 
so she's in the shower and then Wyatt Stone hears her singing and he's um and he's looking at her diary and, and going through her personal going stuff, through and like ugh. intruding look, into her space let me, let me tell you I pretty much uh, broke up with a guy a lot a boyfriend because he kept looking he kept going into my purse that was one of the things that set me off. So to see him just looking at her diary, that made me so angry. And then he decides that he's, you know, he's going to he write this song. song. Yeah, well, and he he's like, I'm, the song. let me sing this. I'm just going to, she's just going to go crazy over this. And she's like, that's not how I wanted it. Nope. Nope. He tried to put his own interpretation on it without ever talking to her. Because he, again, was in, he was intruding into her space. Yes. And didn't even bother to talk to her about it before he just decided how he was going to interpret the song and how he was going to arrange the song mm -hmm. and just and, uh, then, and then 1997 Daisy says I thought so little of myself that I just gave it to him she didn't even fight for it and she does say stumbled on sublime until you can't speak so she is the lyrics I think are talking about she hasn't found her voice and then she basically mm -hmm. says it yeah and then she because says, this, this point, she just considers herself, she doesn't consider herself a singer yet. Mm -mm. She can sing, but she doesn't consider herself a singer. No. She's writing down these random things and she has a melody in her brain, but she doesn't consider herself a musician or a singer yet. So she does not have that confidence in herself. So she did just kind of let him take it. Yeah. And then the next thing she says in that same 1997 moment is, thank God I met Simone. And then we cut to, uh, they're at a party, you know, like it looks like an industry party and, and Daisy. Somehow Daisy's gotten herself into it. Yeah, of course. Know how. And, and, <laughs> she doesn't know anybody yet. And then, and I love this choice. And it's so interesting to me. She's talking about, she's going on and on about the swimmer. Which I is, had to go back and look up that movie. It Burt is, Lancaster. It's a Burt, okay, it's a Burt Lancaster movie. It's based on a John, I believe, John Cheever short story. And it's about a middle-aged man who, at the beginning of the movie, he has decided, we don't know when this happens. We walk in and he's like, I've decided that I'm going to swim basically across the neighborhood. I'm going to swim across town and I'm going to do it by swimming in people's backyards. And then it's basically a little vignette every every different pool that he goes to. It's so random. Um, it's really an amazing movie because it is all about um, being middle class. It's a lot about class and it's a lot about what it means to age. And um, it was one of, Bert, you know, Burt Lancaster's incredibly progressive. Read Burt Lancaster's biography. Um, he, he was a true mensch, good guy. And this was a movie that he wanted to make. And it is... Um, I mean, it's, there's some messed up stuff that happens in it, but it is um, really powerful. And I do believe there's first, there's a pool. That's one thing I think she, and then this idea of, in a lot of ways, the world of the swimmer is the world that Daisy Jones lived with her parents. So, okay, of, so explain that. Because her parents were these cold, upper middle class people. And that kind of a lot of the swimmer is about that cold okay. upper middle class in california um it's about money and how how are you how do you define yourself when you don't have money what what are the um you know your your choices 
as in, in that idea of because all John Cheever stuff is always about like kind of that malaise of the middle class and okay. especially of the of the middle-aged white man <laughs> and in it and it's so she like the, to cut to that and then at that moment she's with Simone you know there's a reason that they chose that because that's not in the book they could have put any line of dialogue there mm-hmm. so it's that idea of then she meets Simone who is completely not of that world so of that, yeah of that middle class white wasp rich like upper middle class world like of of the world where people have pools in their backyard right where all your friends have pools in their backyard so you can be like hey can i come by and swim you know and i it, it's a movie worth watching because it has it has a lot to say about that and about class so then we get to simone so again we and, have this intentionality mm-hmm. with some of the choices that they're making yeah exactly i mean which the yeah that's that's the table stakes you got to do those things for me to want to watch you as a tv show mm-hmm. um so then we've got um we meet simone and we meet the woman that she's singing back up for penny richardson and um so who do you obviously, think that penny was supposed to be pay- based off of oh i can't remember i think it's um because they also have a character kind of like that in um grace of my heart and I think it might be Connie Francis, but okay. there was a person who had yes. like a lot of hits in the city and they were basically closeted. Yes. Okay. And I, I don't, I can't remember. And, um, but I, there, there is a well-known and it, I think it might be Connie Francis, but it was kind of a, like a pop star of that time. And then um, that they were closeted. I do remember that from, that character in Grace and Grace of My Heart for sure. And yeah, that was always kind of that Dorothy Day, Connie Francis kind of girly singer of the 50s. Yeah, I see that. Okay. I was yeah, just curious so, who you thought. I mean, but, it looked- yeah, you could see that there was something because again, there was this conflict of these. Leslie two Gore. Thank you. I knew Leslie Gore. Leslie Gore. There you go. Good job. And- yeah, I just had to look it up. And she'd say she did It's My Party and um, Judy's Turn to Cry and You Don't Own Me. Yeah. And um, she, uh, it's it's not obvious. I don't think I'm not trying to out her, but that's kind of a character like that was also in Grace of My Heart. Yeah. So Same kind of vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Same so, kind of vibe. Anyway, so we see, and so, I mean, as far as I remember, and I have listened up to as far as the show has gone, re-listened to the book, we, though, is Simone isn't gay in the... No. Okay. That's what I thought. No. We don't get that, we don't get that implication. I I don't get that implication in the book that she's, that she's gay Mm -hmm. at all. So right. this is something that they added that I think, you know, based on the time, um, not nineteen ninety seven, but based on releasing it today, I think again we've seen them trying to diversify the cast as much as they possibly could. Yeah. So here's where they took some creative leeway. Yeah. And diversified the cast even further by uh, making it, which is fine. Yeah. It doesn't change. I mean, it doesn't. I think. I think it. 
improves it, but I think it improves her character. And again, we get some more depth. And in turn, I think this is going to get, this is going, this is giving more depth to her and Daisy's relationship. Yes. I mean, in the book, I think there's 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 a reason why I like the choices that they make about her relationship and there's things that I don't like about it because in the book Simone is like 19 and Daisy's like 15 or 16 and like Simone basically becomes her replacement parent mm-hmm. and it's like I went to her graduation I told her she had to go to school we, we don't have any of that in the um in the book in the in the show which I'm okay with that because I feel like too often there's these care, you know, the black characters are cast as um, these wise people or, you know, so I'm glad that we don't have that. So, but I also did like the fact that Simone was this kind of parental figure that she didn't have. And that's why there, there were, there was a closeness to them. Um, but they're, they go to, um, they, they hit it off, they're talking and she's like, oh, you're just too good of a singer to be hanging with Penny Richardson. But then when Penny Richardson walks up, she's like, oh, hi, I love your music, which I think is hilarious. I like that line. <laughs> and then, um, and Simone does have a record deal. And then they go to her house mm-hmm. and they're listening to Tapestry. And guess what song they're listening to? They're listening to Going Back. Yep. Her, her her version of it on Tapestry. Which is that album. Yes. Again, I, I, you know, I, despite being, I mean, that, 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 I don't even know how to say it. Despite being that album came out when we were so incredibly young. I'm trying to even think when Tapestry was released. I think it was like 71 yeah. or 70. So we were, I was thinking 71 or 72. Mm-hmm. Um, that album, I, I can't even, the CD, I can't tell you how how many times I, like that was on constant loop for me in college. Constant loop for me in college. Yeah. 71, released in 71. Yeah. Constant loop for me in college. Obsessed with that. Because I also I also had a period of a period of my life where, again, this strong love for Fleetwood Mac, but there's also James Taylor, mm-hmm. Carly Simon, yep. Carol King, those three, those three musicians, um, equally as obsessed with. Equally as obsessed with. Well, and I think, you know, the thing is going back, like point going back, haha, is that <laughs> you think of, if you look at the lyrics, I think I'm going back to the thing I learned so well in my youth. I think I'm returning to all those days when I was young enough to know the truth. Um, so this, this choice is also, cause I could have chose any song. This, this, this isn't in the book. They chose this song because we are, it's it's a meta it's we're talking about daisy 1997 daisy going back and then mm-hmm. this song is about going back too so it's this and it's interesting because like carol king wrote that she's probably in her 20s you know when she wrote it originally so it's just that idea i think of them they're choosing these lyrics these songs with very important like lyrics to make it because they didn't choose the song that they t- that she talks about in the book which is you've got a friend which right. that scene in the book to me is such a great scene because they look over to each other and 
they're singing along and they're basically singing it to each other and it's kind of like you know I don't know I think sometimes in friendships you have moments that it's almost like a wedding where you kind of say vows to each other like we're going to be friends forever and that's what it is for them in the book well, so. and, and sometimes we have again we have lyrics that speak when we can't find the words right right so we we can we have songs that speak everything that we wish we could put into words and we can't yeah and then the book Simone looks at her and says me too me too she doesn't even have to say anything we're we're singing the lyrics she doesn't even have to say anything Simone gets what she's trying to tell her and she says me too um one of the things that I thought as they were in that scene um was what was that the part where Daisy was like I'm not a singer Yes. She asked her if she was a singer and she said, I'm not a singer. And Simone says, well, you know, some girls are there for the music and, um, and some, some are just groupies and, you know, what are you doing in the crowd? I see you, you. you're, you're something more. There's yeah. something more to you. And what do you, you know, what do you want to, what do you want to be? What are you going to do? And this is the first person that's given her, um, permission to yes. do this. And, told who, her, and she says, and she specifically says, I see you mm -hmm. where her mom told her no one wants to hear you. Yeah. But somebody, and you know, we've already had, you know, um, Wyatt taking away her, Wyatt taking her voice mm -hmm. and claiming it as his own, her mother telling her, Oh, you're pretty. Yep. That's good. You're pretty. Good thing. You're pretty. Yep. You know? And now we finally have somebody of someone who is telling her, you have something, you have a voice. It's good. It says important things. Yeah. Now you just need to know that you can get up there and do it. Right. <sighs> wow. So we got to go faster. <laughs> I know. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so now we're at, um, we cut to, and we're at the winner's gig. And I think pointing out as they're walking in, Camila is holding onto Eddie's arm. And for a second, I got confused because I was like, wait, have they changed the cast again? <laughs> and then, but then she hugs Billy. So um, there's already like little, these little things happening, which none of that's in the book. So yeah. And then at that gig, we see the beautiful Karen and Graham is in love with her at first sight. And so um, a couple of things. Yes. I found after, after we've taped the first episode, um, Sookie Waterhouse has been dating for the last five years, Robert Pattinson from mm. Twilight. Mm. So now we have two people that are a part of book world franchise that have very very committed fans yeah. now daisy jones is one song stand or one book standalone and then we have the twilight series which robert pattinson was involved in but there's still this deep connection with fandom and we've got two 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 people here who are connected to books that have very very strong fandoms within the book world so i just thought that was very interesting that is so that was just something. The other thing that I know, we talked about this. So Karen in the book, Karen, Karen in the book was not British. She was just another American girl playing the keyboards, but they made her British in the movie. 
or in the series. So is that, is it that Suki auditioned and they were like, oh, Suki's great. We're just going to do that. Or was this maybe a tip of the hat to Christy McVie? That's what I wondered after I watched it. Oh, I'd like to think it is, but I, I just think that, like, just think how many they just times. The actress. Yeah, yeah, they just always, and I mean, I'm glad they didn't try to make her do an American accent, you know, because, like, huh, sometimes, because I'm like, sometimes career. can we just hire an American? Come on, you can't tell me, you the know. British that, that breaks through with their I mean, British I mean, accent. There's, there's, a, I mean, of course, I know they hate when Americans do British accents, but um, I just sometimes go, come on, really? I mean, it's like Hugh Laurie as House. He does a perfect American accent <laughs> and also in Veep. And then I would say, so I'm just glad they had her be British. And so we didn't have to like deal with that. Fight with the, the yeah. slip ups. Yeah. So then, um, so they're at the winner's gig and then we, and they're, they're opening, um, you know, and, and Graham tries to get Karen to, you know, he tries to kind of hit on her. Nothing really comes with that. She's she's not interested. And then we enter Tim Oliphant as Rod and um, with just a terrible wig. <laughs> I think we already talked about it. Um, in 19, And then 1997, he has a, a slightly better wig and like a very like kind of scarf that was very uh, uh, Steven Tyler-esque, you know, yes. like, you know, and then, um, but and honestly, really captures, I feel like, the 1997 older rock person quite well. Mm -hmm. And then um, he says, you know, you see lots of bands, but Billy is a rock star. And I do think they did a good job with the performance. I forget. They're singing um, uh, one of their songs. And it's, it does a good job of, like, kind of showing his charisma. Mm -hmm. And then we're back. And then um, and then we have Tim on the phone. They're all, like, listening to him, taking his advice. And he says... Um, and Billy's like, oh, I'm trying to write this song, and 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 because Tim's his Rod says you've got to write your own stuff, and he, you know, he's like, oh, I'm going to write about, it. and it was something political, and yeah, and I I looked I it up actually. It yeah. was it was a group of Catholic activists. God, now I'm going to it's going to drive me crazy because I can't remember what the line was, but it's a group of Catholic activists who were killed, and oh. so he was Billy had. Billy had a song that he wanted to write about these people. And Rod was like, no, no, it's a new decade. People yeah. are tired of all the politics. Well, here's the deal. We were still very much a part of the Vietnam War. We were heading into a tumultuous, um, we were heading into a tumultuous presidency with Nixon yes. on the horizon. So that's, I mean, that's really nice that you want to say, oh, let's just set that all aside. But the reality is it was still very much a part of the day-to-day -day lives of American people at that time. We were still much very involved in the war. People were still um, very, very much involved in the civil rights movement. Um, so but if you, if you, you, you look at it, get rid of it, but it's still there. If you look at the music, though, that was when we, the singer-songwriter, came to the, the forefront. Um, you know, they, you know, the songs, you know, Bob Dylan, I think that's, isn't he going through his gospel phase? Like, or I don't remember, but the, the idea that music and our youth and our energy can change the world died. You know, it, it died by then. They, they'd already gone through Kent State. They'd already gone through um, Altamont, 
um, already so many of the people they loved had died, you know, Hendrix had died, Morrison had was, you know, these people were dying. So, I mean, I remember there, there was just that moment and then it did become about, and also these people are now hitting, they're getting close to 30. So they're, what they want to talk about as songwriters is changing, mm-hmm. you know, and I mean, some of them, like, so I think it is really, I think he was right. I'm not saying that. And I think if you look at times that are really tumultuous now, um, sometimes we, it all is about escapism. In like the 30s, the escapism was reflected in the the Busby Mer- Berkeley musicals, you know, like yeah. um, now I think the escapism for what we are in right now is our obsession with Marvel movies and things like that. So um, I think music at this time was the thing that was doing that for people because they were right. they were just tired. People were ready to escape it. Yeah. So um, good line, um, I think, is Karen saying, Rod told me to wear low cut shirts. I told Rod to eat shit. <laughs> um, I feel like Karen has so many great lines in the book, and I'm glad that we're keeping some of those. And then Rod's like, oh, you, if you really want to make it, man, you got to move to L.A. And, you know, get he was, with. He was get... so, like, <laughs> textbook. I know. Like, smart, like, textbook smarmy, you yes. know what you would expect which i i kind of missed i loved the way she wrote the character in the book of rod because he was so like i'm just a guy who manages a rock and roll band you know and i kind of missed that character but um so we but told get, them they gotta get they gotta get to la you gotta get to yeah, la um and you know get work with producers like teddy price so they throw the teddy price book you know breadcrumb out there and then they go um and then Camila and Billy discuss um, her going and she's, because they kind of like, yeah, we're going to go to LA. And then she walks up and she's like, what? What are we doing? And she says, I just can't follow some boy across the country. I have a job. I'm going to school. And then she goes, closes the door and says, you still owe me that song, Billy Dunn. And then I, a really lovely scene, I think, between her and her mom and her mom. You and still their owe t- me that song. And <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. a lovely scene when her mom, they're talking and they're talking Spanish. I liked that. And she's, she's like, oh, family's the most important thing. You never turn your back on the family. You shouldn't leave. And but she tells her mom, well, you did. So cut to the next day. It's raining. Guess who's loading the van? Eddie. He's stuck getting soaked loading the van. And Poor Camilla, Eddie. And, and Camila shows up. And Eddie gives her a, like, oh, okay, cool. Um, How do we feel about Camila's choice here? I mean, she's meant to be 18, 19 years old, right? Yeah. Um, She tried to be logical. She tried to make the smart move and say, I'm going to stay here for my school and I'm going to stay here because this is where my life is. But the reality was she was an 18, 19 year old young girl who was madly in love and could not picture a day without this amazing human being in her life and so she just couldn't imagine living without him yeah so she went yeah yeah but it 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 also helps to um it helps with the renaming of the band yeah since we are down a (laughs) a whole character (laughs) since we are down a whole character um it it helps them with renaming the band okay so she had to go so then Daisy hears her song on the radio. We cut to her. She's on the radio at the gas station. She hears Stumbled on Sublime. Oh. She's not happy with that. 
They were at what a restaurant. What was even supposed to be? I mean, I couldn't even tell what he, the I, oh. the phrasing of that song made no sense when he was singing it. No, but. he's terrible. <laughs> the worst. The worst. And then. And um, she has her hoop earrings on. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, she's, she's got those hoop earrings on. And then we go to, she's at a restaurant and she's talking. And honestly, this is really messed up. And he says, um, she she talks about how she has this thing called the up and down. And the up and down is because in the morning she has to take Benny's so she can, you know, get going, but that makes her too jack- jacked up. So then she takes drink champagne and she calls it an up and down. And the guy that she's with is says, um, ooh, I love that. I'm gonna use that in one of my books or one of my scripts. And then we have a pivotal moment where she says, what makes you think I'm not going to use that in something someday? Don't be. And he says, don't be cross. You can be my muse. And I'm like, who says cross? That was weird. And she says, I'm not interested in being your muse. I'm not the muse. I'm the somebody. The whole, the whole no need to be cross. (sighs) Calm down. You sound crazy. Yes. You're being irrational. Yes. We don't yes. say those things to men. No. We only say those things to women. Yeah. Which is a, a button pusher for me. A well, I mean, just not, me. and no apology. Like, no, like, oh, I'm sorry. You know what? I should have thought of that. Yeah. You know, but no, she, what she's there for is to be pretty and support him. You know, and yes. I mean, I would say, um, yeah. So like, it's, it's just an, <sighs> Because we were not, we were not completely, we were not, well, we're still not, we we weren't even starting into the evolvement of, you know, the ERA and women going out into the workforce and crazy things like, you know, being able to sign a contract as a woman, get a credit card as a woman. Like, so, so they were still very much ornamental representations of the success of their man. Yes. Yes. They're their success or their them as a as a they were just like an ornament to once again for a man to show his level of success well and i just that's why you think you you know whatever we do to celebrate them and we celebrate them a lot but we need to celebrate them anymore are the women who wrote songs had their voices beyond just carol king beyond uh, i'm talking about Loretta Lynn, you know, and Dolly Parton and people who are like, I'm not just a muse. I'm not just, I'm something. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to be seen, you know, so that is, and to me, the, that is the whole point of Daisy Jones, like, is the fact that when she says, I'm not interested in being your muse, I'm, I'm the somebody. Mm-hmm. I'm the and, somebody. Yeah. And I think, you know, even like, you know, even for us in our generation, like, I feel like we, the women that we did have, we did, I didn't appreciate enough. You know, the women who I don't think I appreciate a few of them. And it's, it uh, as we've talked about before, anything that women like, obviously, we've got to shit on. So as much as the Alanis Morissette, or you know, Courtney Love, how they basically said, well, Courtney Love didn't actually write those songs. She did like, you know, Kurt Cobain wrote those for her. And like, come on. Um, the idea of 
the idea of the way we treated the way they treated Yoko Ono and it's like you know she was already her own thing and an important part of the art world like take because she wasn't a part of the pop culture world right therefore and, she was irrelevant and because she's Asian <laughs> Yeah. you know so she, was, she wasn't a part of popular culture but she was very much a part of a culture that middle america did not know about we didn't know about and probably even the west coast did not know no, about she's an incredibly important artist that's but why he met her because her. she was at a really important gallery show that's how he met her so anyway i think that this idea of i'm the somebody especially for i just like yeah, that's the whole point. It's a really important scene. And I think she did. they did a really good job with it because I think it's um, so important. And I like this, the little thing of her in her Mercedes, which is a part of her. It still shows her privilege. She's still a little rich girl. She's yes. got Mercedes. Yes, that Mercedes. Oh, God. Nice. Too ADSL. And, and mm. then the, the line she says, 1997, Daisy says, no matter how confident you pretend to be, if enough people call you shit, you believe them. And then she, um, we see her walk into, she'd walked by this bar earlier. Um, we see her walk into this bar and she sings um, by myself. So many great lines in that, in that yes. song. And again, this goes back to the, we need a soundtrack that's not just the Aurora album. We yeah. need everything else. Because so, this song has so many great lines. And then we cut to... Um, then we and she's happy with herself as she sings it and it's we, yeah, we, we linger on that a long time and i think it's a really good performance by riley um i think they do a really i like the way they filmed it i like the, in the empty bar it looked like a bar during the day that you go into and i like how when you come out you're like oh it's still daytime you know yeah um, but i think this is the point where she finally decided that yeah she was a singer because yeah. again we go back to the scene where she said told simone i'm not a singer mm -hmm. And, you know, she allowed Wyatt to take from her. Yeah. And, I, and uh, I'm not going to be somebody's muse. I'm I'm the somebody. This is that moment where she finally connects all those things that she said to her heart and yep. to her mind and now sees that she truly um, is the somebody. Or she could be the somebody um, and, and finds her own voice. And then we go to Carol King's I Feel the Earth Move, which is such a great song. And we see her walking out of the bar, and then we see um, the van, the, coming, the van up coming the strip. And they're implying that maybe Billy sees her and smiles at her. Or, or, and I'm trying her to good. decide. I feel I'm like it was kind of like that, like, I don't know, when you kind of accidentally make eye contact with somebody when you're driving. Sure. And, and also like, oh, wow, that girl's so California looking, you know? Yeah. But something I, in his face. Yeah. Like, like there's a moment and it, it it's fleeting. It's really fast. Right. But there's something in his face that changes. He sees something. And I, for me, I saw a moment of panic. Really? Yeah. A fear, maybe? I saw a moment of panic, but then he completely. So I, I'm, I don't know what it was. Well, I Maybe mean, I and also, I would also say that it's also Amazon, whoever's like the person giving notes from the network going, we can't have them not be in a scene together for the whole first episode. Right. So. <laughs> Probably. Probably so, so. Okay. So that at the end, they, there's a fleeting glance. 
And we don't know exactly what that means, but that closes out episode one. And we thought that we would probably be able to fit two episodes into an hour, but apparently we can't because we like to talk. So we're going to do... <laughs> we like to talk we like we, to talk we like to hear ourselves speak yes we do and um, we have great I, we have great things to say we're just really in-depth kind of people think so i hope people think so i mean i just go back to if nothing else you and i can look back on this whenever hopefully we're 70 and be like we were really big goofballs when we were 50 <laughs> we hadn't really grown up that much had we yeah so we are gonna do we'll do episode two next week sure and or maybe we can, if we can squeeze it in earlier and drop yeah. another episode this week, we might try that. Who knows? Yeah. But, but um, we will try to get that going. And I really want to get past these first three episodes because I've been not watching it because I don't want it to taint my, what I'm talking about. So um, I think, but the best thing to do is for us to stop here and just... Remind us, Rachel, where are we on the socials? Okay, so follow us on Instagram at Nobody's Muses. There's no apostrophe in there. It's just Nobody's Muses, N-O-B-O-D-Y-S-M-U-S-E-S. Nobody's Muses. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on YouTube, Nobody's Muses. Yep. Um, email is also Nobody's Muses at gmail.com. Yes, and please, um, I would love to get emails on um, thoughts what you guys think if we've missed something about the songs that you've noticed especially if you're a book reader things that you your thoughts on the differences love to hear them yeah yeah but give us a follow on instagram we're going to be putting more and more content out there um as we get uh, through continue to record yeah get through this get through these shows i mean look how long they took on just one episode <laughs> so um yeah so we will see you in uh hopefully it, for sure a week oh and don't not- forget to like and subscribe um on any of your favorite podcasting platforms yes um be sure that you are checking us out you can find us anywhere you listen to a podcast Um, but hit that follow button on those if if you feel so inclined to leave a review great if you don't just hit the like button so we know people are out there um paying attention yes and um we'll keep doing our thing yeah and even if you no one watches it we're still gonna do it so (laughs) but i but i think i think it's worth it uh it's a conversation that we want to be and i would love to have more people be a part of the conversation excellent me too all right all right all right, let's hit Thanks the music. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> hit the music. Hit the music. <laughs> Bye.